If you need help getting Social Security Disability Benefits, then this podcast is for you. Give me 15 minutes and I'll pull back the curtain on disability and reveal the secrets to winning I've learned over the past 25 plus years. Hi, I'm Jonathan Ginsberg and I'm a practicing Social Security Disability Lawyer. I want to help deserving claimants just like you win the benefits you deserve and not one penny less. Now, if you already know you need help today, go to ssdanswers.com for a free and confidential evaluation of your case. It takes just two minutes. That's ssdanswers.com, and I'd love to hear from you. Now, let's start the show. Hi there, this is Jonathan Ginsberg, and today I want to talk to you about evidence, evidence that you need to win disability cases. As you probably know, Uh, Disability is different. Social Security disability is different than Social Security retirement. A lot of people get very upset when they discover that they have to prove that they're disabled. For retirement, basically, uh, you have to show you hit a certain age, either 62 or 62 and a half for early retirement, or perhaps 65 or 66 or 67 for late, uh, for regular retirement, full retirement or late retirement. Um, and you don't have to do anything else other than to show your age, and you've got to have to have a certain number of lifetime credits. Disability is very different. You've got to show, you've got to prove that you meet Social Security's definition of disability, and you've got to have enough earning credits for SSDI or Title II disability. And again, people get very upset because they say, you know what, I've paid into the system for years. Now that I can't work, Social Security is forcing me to try to prove all this stuff with all this evidence. Why do I have to prove anything? I've paid into the system. It's my money. I want to get my money out of it. And I, I get that sentiment. The problem is the way they define disability, we have to prove or you have to prove that you are disabled. And in the Social Security world, you have to prove it with evidence. You can't walk into a hearing, and this is an example I give to my clients. If you get to a hearing and you walk in and you say, Judge, um, I know I'm disabled. I can't work at all. I'm in terrible pain. Um, I can't sit very long. I can't stand very long. Um, I can't lift very much. Um, I'm disabled. And the judge is going to look at you and say, you know, what is the evidence? How do we? How do I know that? How do we prove that? You can't simply walk into a Social Security office, whether it's at the state agency level, the initial application or reconsideration level. You cannot walk into a hearing and basically say, I'm disabled, pay me. It doesn't work that way. Um, And again, I realize a lot of people think it's unfair. I certainly understand how frustrating it can be when you file for disability and it takes a year and a half or two years to get in front of a judge, then another three or four months for a decision, and you may still lose, then you have to file an appeal, and if you get lucky and the appeals council reverses or uh, remands it or the district court remands it maybe another couple of years. I mean, it could take four or five years uh, from the time you file. Most cases, I will tell you, say, resolve in a year and a half to two years. But yeah, it's very, very frustrating. So what I'd like to do today is to go over the evidence that I think you need to win and just some general thoughts about uh, how age and education and that sort of thing affects it. So let's go over the type of evidence. And there's different types of evidence we're going to talk about Uh, Some of the types, just to give you a brief overview, medical records, uh, medical opinions, clinical laboratory findings, written statements and and other testimony, uh, photographs, 
Um, these are just some of the things that, that, that people use to prove disability. I want to go through and give you my take on uh, which what those things are and what you need. So let's start with the most obvious thing, and that would be medical records. When you apply for disability and you basically report to Social Security that you have back problems or you've got congestive heart failure or you've got diabetes, the first thing that Social Security is going to do uh, at the state agency level, which is again the first stage of the application, uh, the, there's somebody there called an adjudicator who's like an, a claims manager, person who's going to gather information, and they're going to go ahead and request medical records. Now, generally speaking, the adjudicators will request medical records dating back to about 12 to 18 months prior to your onset date. And that's really a topic for another another recording, but the onset date is the date that you claim that you became disabled. So Social Security will request medical records going back approximately a year to 18 months prior to your onset date. Now, you can also provide those records to Social Security because realize when they request them, um, they're sending out a form letter to the medical provider saying, we're Social Security, please send us these records and we'll pay you X, Y, and Z. And they don't pay very much for them. I would say 75% of medical providers will respond to that. Um, although realize that if Social Security doesn't have the correct address or contact information for the provider, or if the provider has moved, uh, the, the request may never get there. Uh, and again, about 75% of the time, the providers will respond in a timely manner um, and send those records into Social Security. Some providers, especially small medical practices, um, are not going to agree to send these records in without uh, a much higher fee payment uh, for the records. Um, realize that doctor's offices, when they're dealing with legal matters, typically are going to request payment uh, that you know, could be by the page or it could be a flat fee for record plus per page. And I know in the personal injury world, um, medical records might cost two, three, four hundred dollars if it's a let's say four or five hundred pages of records. Social Security may pay twenty or twenty five dollars. And depending on the state you live in, um, some states have rules that if it's for a disability application, the records are to be provided for free or they're to be provided at a very, very low cost. Again, some big providers understand this, others don't. And so sometimes you have situations where a medical provider refuses to provide the records without payment in advance on their fee schedule, even though the law says something different. So that is one reason why a provider would not file or submit records. Um, other providers are part of an electronic initiative uh, with Social Security where they'll provide an electronic uh, access to the records and they'll get in very, very quickly. Um, it just really kind of depends. But generally speaking, the adjudicator, uh, once we have he or she has the names of all providers, will go ahead and request the medical records. You can send those in, or if I'm representing you or an attorney's representing you, we can upload those records uh, electronically. So that way we can make sure that Social Security has them. And sometimes um, if it's a diagnosis that happened a long time ago, let's say somebody was diagnosed with diabetes 25 years ago, or they had surgery 15 years ago, and then another surgery 10 years ago, and another one 12 years ago, whatever, then I may provide these more uh, remote 
or older records because it shows a history. Um, again, generally speaking, uh, Social Security is going to be looking at the 12 to 18 months. But that doesn't mean you can't give them a more complete record. And you want to make that record as complete as possible. So when they ask you for all your doctors, you know, don't leave a doctor out um, because you'd be surprised how often a medical record contains a reference to another medical record. And so if let's say you went to a doctor you didn't get along with, the doctor felt you were drug seeking or you had secondary gain, you were malingering, and you don't want to put that record in there, you don't list it, um, it's just going to delay things. Social Security is going to probably going to get it. Um, I would also tell you with regard to medical records, gaps make it harder to win. So if you are uh, treating with the various doctors and you don't treat for six or nine or 12 months, then Social Security will assume, well, if you're not treating, you must not be that hurt or that injured. So uh, gaps are a big issue um, and completeness of records. And the, the more complete the record can be, the better chance you have for an earlier decision. So medical records are sort of the starting point for any Social Security disability case. And you and your attorney can do a lot to make sure that Social Security has all those records uh, by providing the correct name and address of the practice or of the hospital or of the provider um, so that they can get the records. And if you have the records and you want to submit them, you can. Um, and that way that there's a better chance that they'll have a more complete record. Then what happens, by the way, is that the adjudicator will take it to an in-house medical specialist at Social Security to review the records and offer an opinion about whether or not you meet the qualifications for disability, the adjudicator will then issue a decision. But again, the more complete the records are, the better it's going to be. So medical records are the first step in uh, of evidence for your disability case. The second thing that is really, really important in the disability world are opinions from medical providers. And this by, by this I mean medical opinions from providers that discuss how your medical issue would impact you in a work environment. Remember, Social Security defines disability in terms of how your medical problems impact you or impact your capacity for substantial gainful activity or basic entry-level work. It's defined as uh, do you have a medical condition or conditions that is um, objectively determinable, medically determinable, that has lasted or is expected to last 12 consecutive months uh, or result in death and prevents you from engaging in substantial gainful activity. So it's very much about how the medical issues impact you in a work environment. And to this end, uh, a diagnosis alone is not going to be enough. And I get emails from people all the time. There are threads on Reddit and other social media. People will say, I have a herniated disc. Can I win disability? I have congestive heart failure. Can I win disability? I have diabetes. Can I win disability? Um, it really depends on how those medical issues impact you in a work environment. The diagnoses certainly help, but what Social Security wants to know is what this all means in terms of your functioning in a simple entry-level work environment. Um, so, and it's also, remember, there's a 12-month duration requirement. So you've got to have a condition not only that prevents you from working a simple entry-level job, but it's something that has lasted or is expected to last 12 consecutive months. If you have a medical problem that is going to resolve in three or four months or six months, that is not going to meet the definition of disability. And the way I look at it, the way I always talk, explain it to my clients is, imagine I said to you, here is a simple entry-level job. Literally, you're sitting at a table, 
You're putting ink pens in a box. You're monitoring um, security cameras. You are um, looking at, a, at some sort of a assembly line where clothes are, are, are being are going down the, the conveyor belt, and you're looking for um, cases where the the, the tabs or the, the labels are misprinted or uh, there's some sort of a sewing issue. These are very, very simple entry level. You can walk off the street and do them. But imagine you had one of these simple warm body kind of jobs. You got to be there eight hours a day, five days a week, a normal break of uh, 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the afternoon, 45 minutes for lunch. Can you do that eight hours a day, five days a week? This is not about could you go back to being a certified public accountant? Could you be an executive secretary? Could you be um, a, uh, a surgical assistant? This is about could you do a simple entry-level warm body type of job? And so if you have a, a, a medical doctor who's treated you, um, who's willing to basically say that you've got this firm diagnosis, you've got a herniated disc at L5-S1, you've got congestive heart failure, and because of that, you would not be reliable because you'd have to take too many unscheduled breaks, or specifically, you'd have to take three or four unscheduled breaks during the day. You're likely to miss two or three days of work a month because of symptoms. Uh, the medication side effects cause you to become very drowsy and to sleep uh, two or three hours a day, uh, or you become nauseous because of them. These are all things that impact you in a work environment. And that's really what this is about, is your capacity to be a reliable employee. Um, and your medical records, and so really what you're doing here is you're asking your doctor in one of these forms, and this can be a narrative report, it can be a functional capacity evaluation. I use um, functional capacity evaluations a lot. These are typically forms that track Social Security's official form, but I've made my own up for various conditions. I've got one for mental health, I've got one for back pain, I've got one for heart failure, and various these forms I've developed over the years and you're asking the doctor to translate your medical findings into very, very specific work limitations. The medical opinions need to be consistent with your underlying uh, medical records. So if you've got a form that says you're likely to miss three or four days of work a month, or you're likely to need unscheduled breaks, but the underlying medical record doesn't discuss anything like that, and it describes very mild impairment that is not uh, supported with any, ob any objective evidence, then you're going to have a really hard time winning because judges can disregard a form, an assessment, an opinion um, if it is not consistent uh, with the underlying report. Um, generally speaking, specialists, um, a medical specialist, an orthopedic surgeon, a neurosurgeon, a cardiologist, um, somebody who specifies, a, you know, a, a pulmonologist, uh, someone who specifies in liver or kidney disease, that type of thing, is going to be more persuasive than a family doctor. So if you go to your family doctor and they fill out a form talking about all these orthopedic issues, you know, a judge might look at that and say, well, this is not an orthopedist, so I don't, I'm not going to give that opinion very much weight or any weight at all. Um, so that's something you have to be aware of as well. So ideally, you have records from your family doctor, your general practitioner who's referred you to a specialist. The specialist has treated you, you know, fairly consistently, tried various uh, therapies and modalities of treatment. Nothing has really worked to restore function or eliminate pain. And the specialist is prepared to fill out a functional capacity evaluation that talks about 
uh, very specific limitations that would be in excess of what an employer would tolerate. Um, that is the recipe for a winning case. Um, ideally, you want a functional capacity form or a narrative report from a medical doctor. Social Security does classify providers as either an acceptable medical source or someone who is not. Um, for example, chiropractors and acupuncturists are not acceptable medical sources. Doesn't mean those records aren't going to be looked at, but if you have your chiropractor do a functional capacity evaluation, not going to help you very much. If you have a social worker do a functional capacity evaluation for mental health issues, that's not going to help you very much. Um, if you want to look to see what is an acceptable medical source or not, um, go to your search engine and type in POMS, which is, stands for Program Operations Manual um, for Social Security, or P-O-M-S, at space D-I, uh, just like a dog indigo, D-I, uh, 22505.003. So POMS, D-I, 22505.003 will give you a very specific breakdown as to what is an acceptable medical source and what is not an acceptable medical source. Um, okay, so that is the first half of this episode where I've talked about the type of evidence you need after the break. Uh, we're going to talk about additional types of evidence that you can use uh, to win your disability case. Don't know where to begin? Get my free Secrets to Getting Approved Survival Kit. Inside the kit, I discuss such things as how do you know if you have a case, what to do if you're denied, how to avoid common mistakes, and my ever-popular how to avoid trick questions from the judge. Subscribing is free and easy. Just visit ssdanswers.com and look for the survival kit for instant access. Remember, time is eroding your position every day. Don't delay, act now. That's ssdanswers.com for your free survival kit. Welcome back. We're going to now continue on with uh, more information about the evidence you need to win your disability case. In the previous uh, part one of this uh, episode, I talked about medical records, medical opinions, clearly two of the most significant types of evidence you can have. But let's talk about a couple more things I think that are very, very important. One, and this is a big one, is clinical and laboratory findings. Um, laboratory findings, especially objective evidence like an MRI scan, a CT, an ultrasound, an EMG or nerve conduction study, pulmonary function test, blood test, these are all really, really important to Social Security. Remember, they define disability in terms of a medically determinable condition. And that's another word for, way for saying objectively determinable. It's a lot more, uh, it's a lot, a lot easier to prove disability if you're basing it on pain and there's an uh, MRI that shows a herniated disc at L5-S1 with nerve compression as it would be to prove disability based on a, a pain case like a fibromyalgia case or a chronic regional pain syndrome case. Uh, these are much more difficult because there's not any objective evidence. There's no MRI to show it. So again, if you have, you want to talk in terms of recipes, if you have significant symptoms, you've got an MRI, let's just talk about back pain, for example. You've got severe back pain with radiation into your leg. You have an objective uh, 
evidence in the form of an MRI that shows a herniated disc, an L4-5 or L5-S1 with nerve root compression. Uh, you've got treatment with a doctor, uh, ideally a specialist like an orthopedist who's tried rest. He's tried physical therapy, uh, epidural injections, facet injections, uh, maybe his recommended surgery, or if you don't want surgery, long-term pain management. And then the doctor fills out a form, the specialist fills out a form uh, that basically says that the level of pain you've got uh, makes it impossible for you to maintain attention and concentration at work, to keep on focus, to be reliable. You're likely to miss two or more days of work a month. Uh, you're likely to have uh, episodes of during the day where you need to take unscheduled breaks to rest, to lie down. These all together make your case really, really strong, and it really goes a long way to uh, winning if you have objective medical findings. Um, and again, MRIs are great for for ortho musculoskeletal problems, orthopedic problems. Um, you know, nerve conduction studies can be very helpful for that as well. Uh, ultrasounds can be good for blood clots, DVTs, things like that, pulmonary function for heart issues uh, and so forth. Uh, let's talk about heart issues, congestive heart failure. There's a measurement, there's a standard called an ejection fraction, which uh, basically has to measure the, the, the pumping capacity of the heart. And there's at the listing level, I think it's about 25% or less would be a listing level. You could be at 30 or 35%, not at listing level, uh, but you still have a greatly reduced ejection fraction. And if you're being treated by a cardiologist for fatigue, you've been given medications with significant side effects, and the doctor, the cardiologist, completes a functional capacity evaluation that talks about all these functional issues, then uh, you've got a much stronger argument for a winning case. And, you know, I think that, that, you know, any type of medical problem that lends itself to objective testing is really much, much stronger than ones that don't. doesn't mean you can't win, but invisible illnesses are much more difficult. That's why uh, depression, anxiety, things like that, very hard to win uh, because there's not really objective testing for it. So what I find it takes to win a depression, anxiety case, the type of evidence would be um, evidence of inpatient psych hospitalizations, multiple medication failures, um, you know, maybe a suicide attempt, uh, things like that. That shows the severity of the case. And of course, ongoing treatment with a psychiatrist who is struggling to get your symptoms under control with medication, that is as close as you can come to objective evidence. But simply having your family doctor saying you're severely depressed and would likely miss a lot of work is not going to do it. So the more the more you can you can quantify the evidence, uh, the better it's going to be. Um, school records are another type of evidence. Um, I don't see it that often, but every once in a while, um, it can be very useful if you have a long-standing condition. Um, for example, if there's been if you were in special education classes, that can document cognitive issues or learning issues, which would eliminate categories of jobs maybe that require certain types of critical thinking or um, abilities to multitask, things like that. I've used it for cases where there's where scoliosis is involved. It shows that a person has been treated for scoliosis for 25 or 30 years, and even as a 15 or 16-year-old was missing school because of treatment or had uh, couldn't do certain activities because of treatment. Um, basically, attendance issues, that type of thing. Uh, even situations where somebody was type 1 diabetic and they were having problems and it was noted in their school record, that can be relevant as well. So again, I don't see school records that often, but sometimes, especially in mental health cases, it can be relevant. 
Social Security is not going to get those most of the time, so that would be something where you might have to reach out to the local school district to try to get those records, or if you have your own file, your, your parents have a file, uh, that would be something you might want to get to Social Security. That's just part of the puzzle. Um, another type of evidence, which can be and sometimes very, very persuasive, would be written statements um, that you might get from third parties. The best type would be a statement from a former coworker or supervisor that discusses attendance and reliability issues. These are typically people that have no uh, ulterior motive. You don't work with them anymore, um, you know, and they can certainly describe their relationship with you. If, if you're close family friends, that's one thing, but it's somebody that you really don't want to socialize with, but they can talk about what you went through and what the issues were. And, and some judges find that very, very persuasive because these are people that saw you in a work environment. Remember, the issue in a disability case is, would you be a reliable employee? So third-party statements from former coworkers or supervisors, and you'd put that on form SSA 795, can be very, very persuasive. Really, anybody who can talk about your reliability issues. Um, now, you can get this these statements from, from family members, an adult child, a parent, a sibling, a close friend. Um, obviously, the problem is that, that a judge might look at that and say, well, this person's biased and they have no reason to, you know, to not really support what the claimant is saying. You know, my feeling is if you can get these statements, they can't hurt. Um, and, you know, I think that they can certainly you know, really bring some life to the allegations you're making when somebody talks about a particular incident where they observed you, um, you know, missing a family reunion or missing a family birthday, something like that, you know, I think it can be um, part of the puzzle. You know, is it going to be enough on its own? No, but it can, it can be part of the puzzle. Um, another type of evidence which I rarely use, although I think there's certainly a reason why one could not use it, would be photographs. Um, I, where I've used it would be cases where I have a client with an unhealed ulcer on the leg, um, and you know the ulcer was just an open wound for months at a time. Um, that might have been from a circulatory problem or diabetes, something like that. Um, I one time had a client with uh, multiple sclerosis, and I remember she came to the office uh, for a pre-hearing conference, and she literally slid down in in the seat, the passenger seat, into the I guess the wheel well, if you want to call it that, and couldn't get out of the car. And so I videotaped, um, you know, we had to call the paramedics, and I videotaped the paramedics getting her out of her, the vehicle, and I submitted that to the judge. Um, and I think that was evidence, and this is a really strong case anyway, but that is an example of, of kind of non-traditional evidence that really shows, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. So, you know, I think that could be, could be useful um, if it's, um, if, let's say you have swelling in the knees or elbows or arms or legs, especially if one leg is much more swollen than the other. Um, that's another example where a photograph could be used. Um, I think that, you know, I, when I think about it, you know, when I submit evidence, typically it's done electronically, so the photograph would have to be something I could submit electronically, probably in a PDF format, so I could probably come up with a way to do that. Um, but it uh, used to be we'd mail in uh, pictures and things like that, and the judge would have a physical file. Now it's done electronically, so if you do that, you've got to make sure that the photograph is visible and clearly discernible uh, in electronic format. I've seen people upload photographs, and you don't see anything, just a kind of a black mass, 
because the, the photograph was in a format that was not usable. So be aware of that and definitely take a look at that before you submit it. And obviously, as an attorney, you need to think about the best ways to get these things uploaded. So those are kind of the basic types of evidence. I would say certainly that uh, medical, medical records, medical opinion statements, and objective test results are probably the big, most important ones. But there's other things can fill in the gap. And you've heard me reference a piece of the puzzle a few times. And that's what this is. This is a puzzle. And we're basically putting it together, showing that the combined effect of all this evidence is that this person would not be a reliable employee. Um, let me talk briefly about age, um, education, and evidence. Um, you know, you may have heard that disability is a lot easier if you're older, if you're 50 or older, or 55 and older, if you have less education. And that's all very true. And that's because in the Social Security world, um, again, we have to prove that you're not able to do even a simple entry-level job. And obviously, a person with an eighth grade education is going to have less potential jobs available to that person than someone with a college degree. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't win if you've got a college degree, but it just means that you've got to have more and stronger evidence. Same way at your age. If you are 55 years old or 57 years old and you've got you know evidence of a herniated disc and some opinion testimony and third-party evidence and so forth, um, you know, a judge is going to probably give you the benefit of the doubt because you're going to be only on disability for five or six years, then you, you know, transition over to Social Security retirement. It will not be as much of a drain on the trust fund. On the other hand, if you are 35 or 28, um, you're going to need a much stronger amount of evidence, much stronger, much more persuasive evidence to convince a judge to put you on disability because that judge knows you're going to be draining the trust fund for another 20 years. So I would say there's kind of an inverse relationship between the amount of evidence you need to win. There's a certain threshold you've got to have, but as you get younger, that evidence needs to be really, really strong. No gaps in treatment, very, very strong supportive statements from your treating doctors, a lot of objective evidence, and you're going to have to really prove that, that despite your youth, um, you're not going to heal up from this, that you really can't function uh, even in your daily activities, much less in a job environment. Uh, much more difficult to win, and that's why you'll find you know, a lot of attorneys don't want to represent clients that are in their 20s or 30s because they're just too young and it's just too much of an uphill battle. And since attorneys in this area get paid a percentage of, uh, of past due benefits, if, if they're successful, you know, it's hard to take on a case where the odds of winning are very, very low versus someone who's 57 or 58 with objective evidence who's basically worked for 30 or 40 years and, um, you know, would typically not stop working unless there was a really good reason for it. Uh, and a person, again, who's going to build up some credibility because of their long work history. I, I've had a no, number of judges say to me at times, you know, your clients really impressed me with how long and how hard she has worked. Um, and that makes a difference to, to judges in terms of credibility, whereas a 25-year-old won't necessarily have that. So I definitely think that um, the older you are, and again, 55 being sort of that cutoff for disability, which makes your case a lot more viable. But 50, you know, the grid rules do apply to age 50. The grid rules are a, a type of uh, theory of disability that uh, reduces or, or lessens the burden on you to prove disability. And I've got a website called gridrules.net if you want to take a look more about the grid rules. But certainly anybody over 50 has an advantage of anybody under 50. Uh, and again, the further you get away from that 50, you know, 20s, 30s, early 40s, uh, you're going to have to really have compelling, compelling evidence. So that is my take on kind of an overview of what I think 
evidence needs to be and what evidence we use, what I've used in disability cases. Um, I think that, uh, uh, you know, that you can't really overstate the importance of having compelling evidence in your case. You've got to be able to prove, because you do have the burden, to prove that you are disabled. And if you put together good evidence and if you're consistent about going to the doctor and there's, there's a, a clear diagnosis, um, then I think that really improves your chances. Um, I hope you found this episode helpful. If you did, please um, review it and rate it on iTunes, wherever you get your uh, podcast. I, I'd uh, be grateful for a five-star review if you find it helpful. And stay tuned. We've got some great interviews coming up uh, the rest of this year. Um, and I, and I've, I'm talking to a number of my colleagues who are do, doing some really interesting things. Uh, there's some really uh, smart attorneys out there. And, I, and actually, uh, speaking of that, I want to give some credit out because there's a few lawyers I follow on LinkedIn, and they talk a lot about evidence in the context of appeals. And I just want to let you know who they are. Uh, and if you're on LinkedIn, and you're, especially if you're an attorney, um, Carl Osterhout, who's a friend of mine, does some really, really great posts on LinkedIn. Um, Daniel Jones is another attorney. I don't know him personally, but I'm, I'm connected with him on LinkedIn. Um, Brian Konoski does some great stuff. George Piamonte. Uh, there's some really, really great thought leaders in the disability world. And if you're on LinkedIn, uh, and it can be a little technical at times, but you should follow those folks and find the social, social security groups and see who's posting a lot because there's some really smart attorneys out there who you can learn a lot from them. I certainly have, and it really helps me in my practice kind of stay up to date. So for now, this is Jonathan Ginsberg. Uh, if I can be of assistance to you, please reach out to me at my website, ssdanswers.com. Uh, and I hope that uh, you continue to, to you find this, this episode helpful and you'll subscribe to my, to my uh, uh, podcast as well as my YouTube channel. I've got a great, really strong YouTube channel, uh, close to 400 videos at this point. You can just find me by going to YouTube and typing in Jonathan Ginsburg, Social Security Disability, and you will find more information about Social Security than you could ever hope to have, uh, ever hope to have seen before. So again, I hope you find this useful, and if I can be of assistance, please let me know. Thanks. Well, that's a wrap for today's episode. Subscribe to this podcast for regular updates at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this podcast useful, then please give me a five-star review because it helps others see the value of my information. Thank you in advance. For a 100% free and confidential evaluation of your case, visit ssdanswers.com. That's ssdanswers.com. Don't delay. Act now.